On a farm in Delaware County, Arkansas, March 18, 1813, owner Ambrose Johnson found some damage done to his well. He was curious as to what happened, but when a young neighbor was spotted looking down into the well, Mr. Johnson became suspicious. The young lad, Arthur Tillman, asked what happened as the well was clearly damaged. The outer wooden rail had been removed, and one side of the stacked rock edge was caved in, the rocks missing. Thinking his behavior odd, Johnson requested the help of his neighbors to investigate the well the next day. After several hours, the missing stones were discovered, and they were holding in place a gruesome discovery. The body of 19-year-old Amanda Stevens was found underneath the rubble. She had been missing for eight days. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Amanda Stevens was pulled from the well the next day. Half of her body had been laying in water. She was crushed by the rocks, a noose wrapped around her neck, secured to a boulder with a telephone wire. She was also shot in the head with a twenty-two rifle. There was dirt and scratch marks on her hands and broken nails indicating a struggle before the end. In a cabin only about ten feet from the well had been determined to be where the actual crime took place. And there's one more thing. She was four months pregnant. Amanda Stevens lived in the area and was raised by her widowed father. They lived in very poor conditions, and Amanda was known to have several bows. It's not known for sure who the father of the child was, but the young man she had been dating most recently was Arthur Tillman. Right away there was an arrest warrant out for Tillman. He thought it might be a great idea to leave the state to visit an uncle in Clarksville, Tennessee. He claimed his uncle was a lawyer and fled there to get advice. He was found and arrested in Tennessee, but he escaped his capture by sneaking out a window. Like, that doesn't scream guilt. The officials in hot pursuit found him again in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and he was handed over to Sheriff Cook to be taken back to Paris, Arkansas for his hearing. He's starting to look pretty guilty, and in the eyes of Logan County, he was already a murderer. The first trial began on August 27, 1913. A mound of circumstantial evidence painted a devastating portrait of the 22-year-old on trial. A note was found signed by Arthur requesting that Amanda meet him the night of her disappearance at the quote-unquote their usual place. Amanda's father discovered the note in the family's mailbox after she didn't return home. Mr. Stevens demanded an arrest warrant to be issued for Tillman on the grounds of seduction. It seems to me putting a note in a mailbox wouldn't be the most secretive way to pass messages back and forth. No one really mentioned anything more about it or even mentioned seeing it. Was it really even Arthur's handwriting? We already know he was poking around the area where the body was discovered. In the Johnson statement, they said they saw the boy, quote, sneaking up to the well and looking inside, end quote. 
He also clarified that the well had been filled with, quote, a wagon load of rocks. Sheesh, that is no small feat. But, playing devil's advocate, was Tillman around there often? Did he live close by? Was the well on the way to where people would see it? Did he know the Johnsons? Did he know that they would be away? And how long does it take to fill up and then empty a wagon load of rocks? The clinching evidence came from a most unsuspected of places, his own mother. Being her oldest, his mother loved him dearly and offered to help out with the investigation in any way. Being an upstanding Christian citizen, she answered the questions asked of her in an honest and concise way. According to an article written by Sonia Parker Fletcher in 1964, she would write, quote, She said she thought the girl had been driven from the country and that she was positive that Arthur had nothing to do with it. To back her statements, she said that, with the exception of a few hours, Arthur was at home the entire night. The time he was away from home was when he left about six o'clock carrying a twenty-two caliber rifle. He returned, she said, between eight and nine o'clock. End quote. Amanda Stevens was shot with a twenty-two caliber rifle. The evidence was circumstantial, even if quite convincing, with the state Supreme Court stating as much in upholding Tillman's conviction. Quote, the identity of the offender depends entirely upon circumstances, end quote. The first trial, however, was a hung jury. The second trial, with Judge Evans, ended November 1, 1913, with a guilty verdict and the death-by-hanging sentence to be carried out in Paris, Arkansas. The hanging was originally scheduled on the anniversary of Amanda's murder, March 10, 1914, but his appeals and denials carried the date over to July. Not ready to settle into the verdict, on the train going to the state penitentiary in Little Rock, Tillman leapt from the speeding train, escaping once more. It only took ten hours for his recapture as he managed to sprain both of his ankles from his jump. When they asked why he tried to escape, he answered, quote, I didn't want to get away, I wanted to kill myself, end quote. He tried to escape one other time while on the train, hobbling and limping toward the exit, but was caught by his jacket just as the door flung open. The Arkansas Encyclopedia explains it, quote, Once on the train, with the chains and handcuffs holding his arms tightly, and with fetters about his ankles, the prisoner was an object of curiosity. Owing to the wide publicity given to this case, Tillman was recognized by passengers. He was taken to the baggage car. His escort sought to save him from embarrassing gazes and occasional remarks of the morbidly curious. About five miles from Paris, the railroad climbed up a steep grade. Suddenly, with a terrific kick, Tillman broke the chain about his ankles before the officers could stop him. He rushed to the car door. There he turned momentarily for a last look at his escort. The glance cost him his escape from the gallows. One of the deputies quickly reached almost his full length and caught the youth's coat. Tillman was dragged back from the door and, after his words of explanation, was rechained to continue the trip. None but the officer and one baggage man knew of the incident until Paris was reached at 6.30 o'clock. This was Tillman's third and last escape attempt. End quote. Hello, hello! Sorry to interrupt our episode, but I wanted to do a shout-out for Bag of Bones supporting company, Lumi Deodorant. 
Lumi's creator, Shannon Klingman, broke the mold on deodorant models that have been in place and unchanged for the last 100 years. She discovered that aluminum, which is a staple in deodorants, was not only not helping, but could be harmful. She completely broke down the problems of body odor and rebuilt a better solution. She came up with Lumi. Her all-natural option of dealing with body odors from any part of the body stops odors before they happen by neutralizing the odor-causing bacteria that can be found on every human in every crevice. Lumi is made from naturally derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free so you can feel confident using it even on sensitive skin. Plus, it's clinically proven to control odor for 72 hours. So, if you haven't yet, be sure to give Lumi a try by clicking the link in the show notes. Or, if you're already an avid fan, please consider using the Bag of Bones link to feed your Lumi habit as it helps curb the expenses of producing the show. Oh, speaking of which, I need to get back at it. The Cal's Encyclopedia of Arkansas would write, quote, Tillman continued to proclaim his innocence, accusing Earl Bolden, a relative of Stevens, of being the guilty party. Later reports have also raised questions about Tillman's guilt. Friends of Tillman, as well as both Tillman's father and Green Stevens, the victim's father, were named as possible suspects. Tillman's family never rested, begging for a new trial or for a full pardon. Fletcher would write, quote, Prominent Little Rock people took a hand on behalf of the boy, and it is said that Governor Hayes received a thousand letters asking for commutation. Their pleas were answered with the Governor George Washington Hayes saying, quote, The crime was a most atrocious one, and if the defendant was innocent, he should not be compelled to spend the rest of his days behind prison walls for a crime committed by some other man. And if he is guilty, no punishment would be too great for him. End quote. Now there's some politicians speak for you. On July 10th, Tillman himself tried to reach out to Governor Hayes with a letter. Here he brought up another scenario with a new possible suspect saying again that he was innocent. He wrote, quote, I would make this statement again and swear to it. If I had only one more minute to live in all on God's earth, I ask you, Your Excellency, is that you give me a fair impartial investigation of my case something I know I did not have nor could have gotten at my trial on account of strong prejudice against me in Logan County, end quote. Only silence followed. The Arkansas Gazette would report, quote, Up to the last, Tillman had expected clemency, and it was not until his two little sisters had called upon him this morning that he gave up hope of respite, end quote. His last few days were well documented, and many have said that he was so doped up his words barely made any sense. But even under the fog of morphine, those that heard his ramblings of innocence only heard words of a guilty man. Ms. Fletcher would write, quote, On July 13, 1914, holding him at arm's length the better to see his face, Mrs. J. F. Tillman bade farewell that afternoon to her son Arthur, condemned to die. Neither mother nor son expected to see each other alive again. Through open sobs, she's quoted as saying, My son, my little boy, you were never sweeter or dearer to your mother than you are today. I will always know that you are innocent. End quote. She embraced him and cried into his shoulder. 
There was not a dry eye in the place because they all knew this would be the last time she would see her son alive. His final prayer in his cell would include his sisters and his mother. Quote, Lord, I am making a long prayer. It is hard to die so young. It's hard to leave my dear old mother. I know my mother will fill an early grave, Lord. She is too worried over this, and when she fills that early grave, I want those people to see that her body is buried by mine, for I love my mother, and my mother loves me. I ask thee again to watch over my little sisters and consecrate them to the Lord Jesus Christ and let them grow up to be good women. There isn't anything more I ask except I commend my soul to the care of the Lord. Amen. End quote. July 15, 1914, a crowd in the hundreds were gathered around the jail. From inside his cell, Tillman could see the platform outside his window. In 1887, the state legislature abolished public executions, although it provided for up to 25 witnesses. This new law required that an enclosure be built around the gallows, quote, sufficient to prohibit public observation, end quote. By the time they were finished building the flimsy fence around the area, all that could be seen from the outer edge was the top corner of the hanging arm. But the lack of view on the actual day did not stop the hundreds of spectators hoping to catch a glimpse of the young man on his way through the cut-out door in the gallows courtyard. Rumors would abound about the possible rescue, so armed guards surrounded the area with instructions to shoot anyone who got too close to the scaffolding. The Arkansas Gazette fueled the rumor by printing knowledge that Tillman's father, John, had purchased a high-power rifle and ammunition, not for a breakout, but that his son would not suffer a long death from the rope. From the reports on the inside of the jail, Tillman was feeling no pain. He was pretty hyped up on morphine. The night before his execution, he was pretty loopy. Reverend Ray would spend the majority of the time with Tillman on that night. He would push for a confession so he would know how to pray. He'd say, quote, I want to know if you are guilty so I may pray and have you join me in sincere prayer for forgiveness. If you are innocent, I want to hear the whole truth. End quote. Tillman would not budge. He would respond with, quote, I am not guilty. If I should confess to a crime when I did not do it, I would die with a lie on my lips. You don't want me to die that way, do you? End quote. Tillman did not mention the victim by name, but referring to her as the girl. The Arkansas Gazette mentions, quote, Tillman did not mention the name of Amanda Stevens or refer to her in his prayer except in his incoherent statement to Dr. Ray yesterday when he said someone else killed the girl. End quote. The Arkansas Gazette also printed, quote, Persons who were with Tillman during his last moments and heard his final declaration that he did not kill the girl said that notwithstanding his utterances, his bearing and his half-hearted manner in which he pleaded innocence gave strong indications of his guilt, end quote. He could not eat the final meal provided for him due to his anxiety, but instead requested watermelon, which he was given. In another article, the Gazette would report, quote, Tillman requested that Reverend Ray would sing Shall We Gather at the River and, quote, the shrill voice of the prisoner joined with him in the singing of the hymn, end quote. The Arkansas Gazette would print, quote, 
At the jail, it was discovered that since his arrest, he had become addicted to the use of morphine, and it was necessary to give him the drug before he could be carried to the gallows, end quote. In his own words, once he finished his final prayer, he told the guards, quote, I am ready, but you must carry me out, end quote. An athletic man who excelled in both baseball and basketball and worked his father's farm and horses, Tillman was escorted slash carried with his feet barely touching the ground out of the jail and led to the gallows. He wore a handsome new white linen suit. As the newspapers noted, an additional dose of morphine before leaving his cell was used to quote-unquote brace him up. Still, he was held upright by the deputies, end quote. Prior to reaching the scaffolding, Tillman turned to the waiting crowd and said, quote, I want everybody here when I'm gone away to read the 25th verse of the 27th chapter of Deuteronomy. It says, Cursed be that taketh reward to slay an innocent person, end quote. As they escorted him up the scaffolding, Tillman would continue, quote, I love Judge Evans. I love everybody. God knows I love everybody, end quote. He drops to his knees and also requested everyone to kneel with him. The sheriff, the two deputies, and the 25 witnesses allowed in the jail yard also bent at the knee. Tillman continues his pleading to those in attendance. They did come for the show, right? Quote, Lord, forgive this sheriff if this is an unjust step he is taking. Bless those who are going to kill me. I know I haven't long on this little platform where I am kneeling. Soon the trapdoor will spring and then death will claim me. When that takes place, Lord, I ask thee, take me by the river where we shall gather. End quote. The death warrant was read aloud to the crowd by Sheriff Cook, and Tillman requested someone to wipe the perspiration from his brow. His last words were for his mother when he said, quote, Tell Mama I am certainly going to heaven this morning. End quote. The sheriff stepped forward to place the black hood over his head, and Tillman shouted, Goodbye, people! Sheriff Cook stepped back and pulled the lever, dropping Tillman four feet through the trap door. July 16, 1914, the Arkansas Gazette read, quote, Arthur Tillman is hanged at Paris. Arthur Tillman paid the penalty of death for the murder of Amanda Stevens on the gallows in the jail yard here this morning. The trap was sprung at 7.03 and 12 minutes later, Tillman was pronounced dead, end quote. A law was passed in 1913 while the trial of Arthur Miller was going on. The law was bringing an end to public executions and, more specifically, hangings. Arthur Tillman would be the last hanging in Arkansas. Even as his story played out, an electric chair and building were in the process of getting set up. The murder of Amanda Stevens happened prior to the law being changed, so they continued on the hanging way. After this quick break, I have one more story. Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. 
Arkansas had been participating in the death penalty trials since even before its statehood in 1836. Prior to the modern era of corporal punishment, which was 1913, executions could be held at any of the jails in any of the counties. The state created a reform to centralize executions into one location, the state penitentiary in Little Rock. The records of death penalty executions had not been documented very well, so there are huge gaps in the timeline. By the time Arthur Tillman's sentence was carried out, the electric chair was in effect and charged up in Little Rock. The first lucky prisoner to break in the new oak chair charged with hundreds of volts of electricity would be Lee Sims. He was arrested for the rape and murder of a young white woman. The prosecution wanted to go for the death penalty, and at that precarious time of change in the judicial system, there wasn't a provision to seek the death penalty for murder, but there was for rape, so Sims was only charged with rape. On September 5, 1913, a 21-year-old Lee Sims would be the first under the modern death row system to be executed with the brand new, barely out of its packaging, electric chair. With few exceptions, the electric chair would be the state's official method of execution until 1990. And, if you'll oblige me, continuing along the timeline, prisoner John Edward Swindler would also hold a unique place in Arkansas's capital punishment history. He would hold the place for the first and last prisoner to be executed by the electric chair. According to the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, quote, in 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled capital punishment to be unconstitutional, a ruling that effectively suspended capital punishment laws throughout the United States, end quote. The Arkansas Gazette reported on June 30, 1972, that, quote, Old Sparky, the chair used for electrocutions in Arkansas, had been found stored in a closet at Tucker Intermediate Reformatory, saying, quote, the diesel engine used to produce the high voltage for electrocutions is stored in the prison garage, end quote. And then in 1977, the death penalty was reenacted in Arkansas. John Edward Swindler was a habitual and violent criminal, having served in multiple penal institutions since the age of 15. After being released from Leavenworth Prison in September of 1976, he returned to his home in South Carolina where he promptly picked up his old habits. Within a short time frame of freedom, he acquired a gun and went on a multi-state crime spree. He stole a vehicle and the plan was to make his way back to Leavenworth to seek revenge for his supposed bad treatment. He vowed to kill as many citizens as he could, shoot as many police officers, and he wasn't above kidnapping, robbery, and abusing an elderly couple in order to acquire their stash of weapons and ammunition. He robbed and shot his way along the states, killing and paralyzing gas station attendants. He apparently had zero sense of direction and couldn't read, so the signs posted everywhere were of no help. It wasn't until he pulled over into a roadrunner gas station to ask for directions that a local police officer recognized the stolen car and the face of the man on the most recent bulletin set out by the FBI. 
Patrolman Randy Basnett would radio in for backup and pull in behind Swindler's vehicle, preventing its leaving. Before other officers arrived, witnesses from inside the gas station saw the officer walk up to the car to speak with the driver. After a moment of small talk, Swindler produced a handgun and fired off two shots, striking Basnett in the chest. The officer would die on the way to the hospital. Swindler managed to drive off but was apprehended by the officers that pulled into the scene just as he was recklessly pulling away. After running through every appeal and years in the jail system, by June 16, 1990, Swindler's attorney acknowledged that there was no basis for further appeal. On June 18, 1990, at 9.02 p.m., John Edward Swindler would be executed by the electric chair for the death of Officer Randy Basnett. He was the first Arkansas death row inmate executed since the death penalty was reinstated in 1977, which made him the first person to be executed in Arkansas in 26 years. But wait, there's more. Swindler was also the last inmate to be executed by the electric chair in Arkansas. So, this is how this works out. In 1913, the first electric chair was put into use by Lee Sims. Then it was retired in 1964. And this was the window of time that Arkansas decided capital punishment was inhumane. Yeah, but even with that law in place, Arkansas went ahead and had a new electric chair built and installed in 1976. And there it waited. Then, somewhere along the line, Arkansas changed their mind again. Not that it got any less humane, but they reinstated the death penalty once again. Then, the state switched to lethal injection to carry out the death sentence, retiring the electric chair once again, which makes Swindler the first and last inmate to be executed in that new chair. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bag of Bones. And just before this episode was going to be released, I found this little bit of new information. Well, new to me anyway. According to journalist David Bailey, writing for the Logan Museum, the truth came out. Years after Arthur was hanged for killing his girlfriend, Amanda Stevens, the debate continued over his actual guilt or innocence. To those looking on, and of course to his own mother, he seemed so sincere in his adamant repetition of innocence. Those in the field of law enforcement saw things in a different way. Decades later, the granddaughter of Tillman's best friend and cousin, James Frank Tillman, would come forward and reveal what her father had told her. He said that Arthur felt compelled to kill her because she was pregnant. He was in love with someone else, and Amanda was claiming that Arthur was the father. She said her father told her, quote, Don't worry yourself, sweetheart, they hung the right man, end quote. The Logan Jailhouse still stands as a museum with the original gallows where Tillman was hung. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next time. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed.
To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.